Hi, you're listening to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. This podcast takes the lived experiences and knowledge of some of the leading figures and thinkers from the world of club management and beyond, all so that they can become your teacher and elevate your performance. Whether you're looking to start a career in club management, are a seasoned club manager at a world-leading club, or work elsewhere within this wonderful industry, there will be powerful messages and key takeaways that can help you in your career or personal life. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Richard Pennell. Richard is currently the membership secretary at West Byfeet Golf Club and is the author of the Stymied blog on Substack, a project he embarked on in order to book golf back where it belongs, a priority in my life. Prior to this, Richard was the general manager of Woking Golf Club for five years, following stints as the deputy at both Royal Wimbledon and New Zealand. He is also a former greenkeeper, a golf architecture enthusiast, and an 11 handicap golfer something that we're working on together to improve. Richard, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ed. Pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you once again. We normally do it across a fairway, but this is a bit different. So we're mainly going to be focusing our conversation today around stoic philosophy and meditation and why we feel these are important implements and tools to have at the modern club manager's disposal. But I'm really curious, first of all, to book golf back where it belongs. Can you go a bit deeper into that for me? I think it's an occupational hazard for those of us who work in golf that we don't play anything like as much golf as everyone assumes we do. And I was certainly guilty of that. I've been playing since I was 11 and um, now 20 odd years working in golf. And uh, I was just hardly playing. And because of that, well, partly because of that, when I did play, I played poor golf and I just didn't enjoy it because of that. And it just, um, I didn't know. I, I reached a point where I thought I either need to throw the clubs in the loft and forget about it or or get back to playing. I, I just lost the, the love of the game. An attempt to gain some of that back, I thought, well, wh- why don't I start writing about it? I've always wanted to do that. And it might help me focus a bit more and, and pay attention. And it certainly uh, proved to be a, a motivator to get out on the golf course and, and rediscover that sort of childlike love of the game that I had. You've worked at some wonderful golf clubs. How did you fall into the golf industry in the first place? So after university, I moved to London and found a job in a bookshop and um, was commuting up to London on the train every morning and just never had the time or the resources to play golf it's not easy to do that in London and um, I would my train would chug through the middle of Mitcham Common every morning and I'd look out the window at people playing golf in the fresh air and and you know just feel like I was neglecting a, a big part of my childhood by letting the game slide away um, so I wrote a speculative letter to the person who ran the golf course at that club, the head greenkeeper, and by chance uh, a position became available. So I took an enormous pay cut and a real leap of faith. And so I was a greenkeeper for five years on Mitcham Common um, and just absolutely loved it, loved being outdoors, loved learning more about the agronomy and architectural side of golf stuff I've just never been interested in as a kid or never take my time to learn about I suppose uh, and then from there um, the again the, the move into club management was sort of chance and, and a bit of luck really I happened to be in the right place at the right time when someone else had left a position at New Zealand Golf Club and so I was the assistant GM at New Zealand and Royal Wimbledon for 10 years in uh, in combination and then um, five years at Woking as the general manager. The path of least resistance, Ed, I think they call it. Ah, sometimes that's the best path. 
do you feel that working as a greenkeeper initially has shaped how you have then managed clubs? I think so. It's certainly been really valuable um, at all three clubs, I think. Um, particularly in the early days at New Zealand, there were some some things I'd experienced elsewhere that were helpful to them. And, and it was the case again at Woking. And um, I think it... <laughs> Well, Ed, you've had a bit of experience of this recently, I know, at, at your local club, and um, that's just a, a wonderful thing to have on your CV because greenkeeping is the dark arts to a lot of golfers and a lot of club managers. And it, if you've had some experience of the day-to-day -day out there and, and how easy it is to get or to have the best of plans sidetracked by weather events and that sort of thing i think it's valuable it just it seemed to build confidence i think it was probably a strong factor in me getting the job at woking actually but um yeah it's been very useful i still look back on those days i mean it is a wonderful way to work out in the fresh air um you develop a really deep connection with a piece of land or i did no i found that also i think Dark arts is a good term to use because when you're speaking to a course manager or similar, if you don't have some handle of the jargon, for want of a better term, it can be hard to have those conversations without the conversation revolving around a lot of explanation to you of what they're talking about. So being able to have that more of a level playing field of conversation does help. Yeah, and certainly at Woking, I was able to be the filter um, for a, an exceptional course manager and just keep stuff off his desk, allow him to get on with the job because people are curious and, and you can't blame them for not understanding turf science because it takes years to learn that stuff. But um, the fact that I had my qualifications in that, I think, built confidence and um, I was able to answer questions and communicate when um, necessary about how and why we do things. Well, you're more accessible as the club manager in the office of the clubhouse or around the clubhouse. You're the accessible person for the members yeah. to ask, not the course manager who is there early, therefore leaves early afternoon yeah. generally, and their office is not somewhere you can just stroll into usually. No, no. And they have the option of hiding behind a tree or in a patch of gorse, <laughs> which the general manager doesn't have. So, yeah. You've never, never been tempted by that then? Uh, hiding behind some gorse? Tempted, yes, but I never quite got away with it. <laughs> hiding under the desk didn't seem to work, actually. But Coming back to your writing, is that something you've always had a passion for? And are there any writers that inspire you and your style? Yeah, I've um it's an interesting one i've always wanted to try writing and in in those five years when i was a greenkeeper i thought about it a lot because it's the nature of the job that you're sitting on mowers and you know hopefully paying a degree of attention to what you're actually doing with the mower but also you you just have the space to think and so that was quite a long time ago now it's um 15 years ago i stopped being a greenkeeper but I'd spent those years thinking about things I'd like to write about and things that were meaningful to me, and I'd basically never had the guts to do it. And I started messing around with it um, a couple of years back and then had to do a little bit of um, writing uh, during COVID and, well, certainly during the first couple of lockdowns for the, the members of the club I was at and found I really enjoyed it and some of the people really enjoyed it, some of the recipients. And uh, you'll never please all the people all the, all the time, I know that, but um, I just, I found it was opening my eyes to things. I was playing golf a bit more uh intentionally and i was just more alive to what was going on around me not that i was going out there think you know hunting for a story but just looking for the details or seeing the details i guess um it it just seems to sharpen my senses for the world around me and the the constant um battle that golf is and the nuance of the game it, it seems to have sharpened all that I must 
in some ways then give a greater satisfaction and enjoyment to your games of golf because you're far more present in the moment because you're looking for something to write about in the sense that what what's happening that's interesting that's unique all the time rather than being away in your own head yeah yeah definitely and you know that and meditation itself i I just found the two practices are very there's a lot of parallels between them and that's a a key one just being present and golf can be a pretty well ed i mean you're at your years of coaching experience you know how frustrated people can get by it i don't get any of that anymore you know if i hit a bad shot or duff a chip and you've seen me do that a few times uh i it's a smile rather than a curse um it's just softened my approach to the game and deepened it at the same time i think Um, both of those practices and there's a you know they they coexist i'm i'm far more i feel far more alive on the golf course and um when I come off, I'm I'm still thinking about things that happened about out there and the stuff I was noticing that I probably wouldn't have noticed all those years ago because I was too busy, you know, listening to my own thoughts continually. Not that I don't do that now, but um, both of these things are helping to slow that down, I think, gradually. Yeah, I've, I've had the same sensation and it does lead us nicely on to our first topic of Stoicism and Stoic philosophy. But before that, there's a great quote of Johnny Wilkinson, the former rugby player, who's also now very into this side of life. And his current, it was new definition of high performance is being 100% present in whatever it is you're doing in that moment. So to him, that could be washing the dishes as much as it could be kicking the winning goal in the Rugby World Cup. High performance is just being present in that moment, regardless what it may be which I found quite a powerful definition of performance. Yeah, he's spot on, isn't he? And when you see people in those flow states, whether it's Zidane um, playing in France's midfield, he, he seemed to have all the time in the world like he was operating on a different plane from everyone else who played soccer. Uh, or, you know, a musician at the height of their powers or anyone else who's performing at a high level they have moments where they're just you know it's almost um supernatural it's an unthinking process i think often at that sort of level and golf you and i both know there are moments when it's just effortless it seems effortless um and i you know i occasionally get that with writing too and i think the more you can silence or quieten the the inner voices and the um, the mental chatter and the noise of modern life, the more likely you are to find those little nuggets of gold along the way, even in the rough. <laughs> stoic philosophy. Now, if you said to most people the term stoic or stoicism, that would conjure up the image of a dour person who's got no emotion is how I, I feel most people see stoicism. What is it? To you, how would you define Stoic philosophy in a sentence or two? I think it's, I understand what you're saying about um, that's the the general picture of it. And and some of the Stoic quotes in, say, the Daily Stoic are quite hard going for, uh, unless you've been looking at it for a while. But I I think it's, it's harnessing and reminding yourself and working on the ability to detach and remain in control. I think of the Kipling poem, If, that I love, you know, when all around are losing their heads and blaming on you, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, they live through extraordinary times and responsibilities and they stayed true to what mattered to them and and they, you know, the integrity of their behaviour, they had to keep reminding themselves of it, as we all do, but um, I think it's, Stoicism is a way to keep things in perspective and not go down rabbit holes. Yeah, I like that definition. They were quite long sentences, Ed. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. I didn't specify how long they had to be. What would yours be then? For me, my definition, my short definition of 
Stoic philosophy is it's about focusing on what's on what's in your sphere of control. That would be my nutshell definition. And that's that's helped me in the last the uncertainty, shall we say, the last nine months with visas coming and not coming. That being able to just focus on what's in my sphere of control and letting go of everything else that I don't have any control or influence over is very empowering by letting go of that. Not that it's always easy and not that I don't have those negative thoughts. I'm just, I notice that when I do, or I notice when I'm thinking Mm. about something that I can't control. Yeah. Uh, Having, you know, we've met and played a bit of golf during that, that time is extraordinary to watch Ed, the way you dealt with that. I mean, there's, that sort of thing's emotional at the best of time, but to have all the uncertainty and, you know, basically no time scale and to watch how measured and sensible you were throughout that phase was inspiring stuff. I mean, that could have driven people without your strength of mind or without stoic interest around the bend, I would think, that situation. But uh, you... you you just saw it for what it was and controlled what you could control and um, let the rest play out. Yeah. And I think if this had happened five or six years ago before I got into meditation and stoic philosophy, then I wouldn't have had the tools to handle it, what probably seemed serenely from the outside. And for those listening who don't know the context of what we're talking about, I left my job in Hong Kong after accepting the director golf role metropolitan golf club in australia and after six months of visa delays with 10 further months potentially coming we decided to part ways with that role so that's the context of the uncertainty and why we've been playing some golf together because i've been back in the uk silver lining silver lining absolutely how did you find stoic philosophy uh i think i heard ryan holiday on one of the podcasts, it might have been on Tim Ferriss, it might have been somewhere else, but I just heard him and I got one of his books um, and enjoyed it. I bought the Daily Stoic um, and that's something I still do today. I, I sort of take a snapshot of the, the um, Daily Stoic on my phone and, and read it before, pretty much before anything else happens. And some days it strikes a chord and some it doesn't, but it's just... Um, I really feel that practice is important to um, trying to be your your best self during the day. Um, So it was sort of a random path to find it. It felt like I'd always been meant to find it by the time I got there. Um, And, you know, the the uncertainties of working through a couple of pretty radical years with the COVID interruptions and so on, I've, you know, um stoicism was really helpful there as well as meditation it was um those two things were enormously grounding in pretty turbulent times i think it's where they're so interconnected the two practices so let's bring in meditation into the fold now for me meditation well for people who don't meditate and haven't i feel that their perspective because this was my view before i started was the whole point is to sit there with no thoughts. That's the goal, is to empty your mind, have nothing in there, be a bit hippie, new worldy. But in the reality I found is that meditation is not about having no thoughts. It's about noticing your thoughts and being aware that you're you're not your thoughts. And what I mean by that would be, although we can invoke thoughts, Most of the stuff that pops in our head doesn't come from our conscious mind. So when you stand on the tee and you think, don't hit this left out of bounds, that's just this involuntary thought that pops up, which you can choose to ignore or focus on and let that derail you, which is where that links to Stoic philosophy, where we've talked about controlling the controllables or control what's in your sphere, is that if less you can notice your negative thought patterns and spirals, it's hard to then understand what's in your control or not. 
would that be how you'd see it or do you have anything different to add yeah no you're you're spot on that's that's how i see it and it's um it means different things to different people and you know if someone's sitting down and meditating and it brings them that sort of blissed out state where they're not thinking that's not a bad thing at all but it's a deeper thing for me i think it's um training the muscle to notice when i'm drifting off um with my thoughts uh, or with distractions or judgments uh, and the more you notice them the more you notice them it's sort of a like compound interest um practice uh it just brings me more in tune with the world around me but also it, it really helps me listen for what's going on inside not just my thoughts but um you know sometimes you you find a a quiet inside and then feelings and almost directions appear and it's just the strangest process to try and describe but um i found in certain circumstances in the last couple of years it was only when i got away from work and technology and and sort of set camping in a field with time to meditate a bit more and sleep a bit more that my some things I'd been maybe not thinking about or avoiding doing, including writing and including getting back to golf, they just were allowed the space to come to the surface. I found it just the most fascinating thing. And I found books about this like ages and ages ago, 25 years ago. Um, But it's only in really the last three or four years that it's become major part of who I am, I think. And, you know, i I get up and meditate before I do anything else pretty much without fail. Yeah, it's a valuable, valuable thing. How long do you meditate for? It varies. So I normally do a little bit of breathing to um, like, you know, three or four minutes of a certain breathing uh, rhythm. I normally do guided. Well, at the moment it sort of changes. um, But at the moment I'm doing guided uh, meditations, which are 10 minutes. I've done longer and I would like to do longer, but I'm constantly juggling the fact that to write anything, I need to get writing first thing in the morning because that's how the day can work for me. Otherwise, I'll miss the writing. So sort of, you know, there's a balance between those two. Um, But then going back about a month, I had a spell of several weeks where I was taking the dog down the canal first thing in the morning. And I mean, there's no one around and sitting uh, under an oak tree there and just listening really and watching but just listening and the dog was delighted because she got her walk out first thing in the day and um so it, it does it varies a bit i thought given that we were starting at 10 ed and i was back here from school run and so on in good time i'd, I'd go and sit on the bench in the garden and do a bit and, and even that i you know i wonder around sometimes not even hearing the bird song in the tree next to me and I just find it whenever I've got a couple of minutes I try and tune in and that's what this practice has given me a sort of very simple um, method for doing that and when you first started how long did you do for is this a practice that it's why some people don't do it is they think they don't have time which comes brings me back to a Dalai Lama quote which was everybody should meditate for 20 minutes a day and if you're so busy and hectic and stressed with your life that you don't have time to do 20 minutes a day, you need to do three hours. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard variations of that, but um, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, well, I think last time you and I played, um, we had a conversation around, I, I think there'd been a a spell where one of us hadn't been doing quite as much of that and was aware of it and sort of meaning to get back into it. I think it was me actually, wasn't it? And I wasn't doing the evening um, practice at all. And um, I can't pretend I've developed a great deal since then, actually. But um, you do notice, or I, I always notice if I'm skipping stuff. And that is sort of the key thing. If I can get that done, the rest of my day will go better. No no question about it. Yeah, I noticed that if I do miss a period of doing it or if I find myself with a high level of stress load, that if I do get back into the routine, if I've fallen off the wagon of 
daily meditation, it does make a big difference. And as you say, it's that it's just noticing both your thoughts and how your body feels with it. And when I first started, I 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes in the morning is what I started with, which I think it's really hard for someone to say that they don't have time. I understand people say they don't want to, but to say you don't have time when it's 10 minutes out of 24 hours, I think it's a tough argument. And what really got me to first try it, because I used to think, oh, do I really have time for this? But I was listening to Tim Ferriss podcasts, interviewing CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world and various other people who I look at as probably being far busier than I am. Plus they've maybe got kids to deal with and they had time to meditate and they valued that as one of the most important things, which is what got me first to try it. I thought, well, if they do it and they run multi-billion dollar companies, they have kids at home and they still find 10 minutes in the morning, I probably can. And it has been really powerful changes. I think for me, it's the ability to notice negative thought patterns. We can't change reality, but we can assign a new meaning to it. So an example for that, we, most people get pretty angry when they drive, especially maybe if someone cuts them up, but you can choose to assign meaning to what happens. They've either cut you up because they're a horrible person and they've determined to ruin your day, which is how I think some people subconsciously see it based on their reactions. Or you can choose to think, oh, maybe they've got an injured or hurt spouse or relative in the car and they're getting them to hospital or they were just in the wrong lane because they're not from the area and they've had to cut in to get into the right lane. Well, you have a choice to make. I know which one of those choices keeps me on an even happiness or feeling level rather than a negative spiral. That's been the power of it yeah. for me. Or when I get into negative thoughts about other aspects of my life or the world, well, I just notice that I'm doing that and I just stop. I think it's hard to be ang angry for a very long time unless you are choosing to continually think about what it is that made you angry. That's the only way you can actually keep yeah. that anger or bad mood or whatever it might be. That's where I found it most, most useful. Whatever situation occurs, and you've given a couple of examples there, we're only ever seeing our perception of it, aren't we? We don't know what's going on in other people's heads or what what they're going through or what their lives are like. The um, I'm sure you know it well, but um, my current walk to work is 22 minutes along the canal. And, um, well, there's two things about that length of time. One is if someone says they haven't got time to sit down and meditate, well, build it in another way because I can, if I'm feeling cluttered mentally, that 22 minutes just walking and listening and keep catching myself going off into thought. But I keep training that muscle to bring back to the sound of the, the bird song or whatever it is, or remembering to smile at the person jogging past or occasionally a kingfish, a kingfisher or flash past and my whole being lifts, you know. Um, so that was one thing. But the other thing is it's the perfect length of time for David Foster Wallace's commencement speech thing i'm sure you know it. this is water and it's exactly that stuff this is water, that yeah. it should be required study in school that it's just i came across that completely by accident again it was probably someone on tim ferris referencing it but um it's just the most powerful urging speech to connect with your life and stop following your own narratives um, and you, you know, the things you were talking about then about being in traffic or being queuing up in the shop or whatever, we just, you know, we can easily get dragged off course, but we have the power to not do so. I think from a, a club perspective, I hear a lot of people, not necessarily just in club, but in life in general, essentially talk about how someone or some entity is out to get them would be how I would describe it. And you'll hear them ranting about let's, like just a purely hypothetical situation. You're the club manager. 
the treasurer or CFO, they're pushing back on something you want to spend on, not giving you the budget. And you'll hear people talk about how that person is is out to get them because they're not giving them the money that they're now reminded. They don't see the big picture. Take a different perspective on it. That person probably isn't out to get you. They just have their own targets and metrics they have to hit. And maybe you haven't given them the details they need. Mm. And that's where using that self-awareness of your thought patterns and then using something like a Brené Brown technique of saying to that person, the story I'm telling myself is that you're not giving me this budget because you don't want me to succeed or some variation of that will get to the truth Mm. of it. And just noticing those thought patterns can be huge. And coming back to your walk, like the walking meditation as such is something that I found great to use when you're just out walking or in nature, just to tune in. We miss so much because our mind's so cluttered or we're off daydreaming. And when you are just taking in everything, that's when the amazing ideas pop into your mind anyway, because it's being used less. Yeah, you're passive, aren't you? You're in a receptive state then. It's fascinating territory, this, isn't it? And it, um, I think we're lucky, actually, that it's becoming more and more talked about. And you mentioned, you know, on, on some of those podcasts, I mean, it's a near universal practice for people at the top of those particular games. And it's coming into sports mm-hmm. psychology a lot. And, uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, it, it would if we all did it, the world would be a better place. I agree. So if a club manager or someone in the club industry came to you and said, Richard, I've heard about this meditation. Two questions. What's, and I know we've touched on these already, but what would be the one or two biggest benefits to my personal job performance you feel I'd get? And what would be a easy way to get into it? I think in terms of a club manager's job or anything, anything you're doing, paying attention to what's going on inside can only make you calmer and reduce stress. Modern life is stressful in a way, isn't it? And, you know, some of that's good and we're we're hardwired for a certain amount of stress from fight or flight um, situations that we no longer really have to deal with. We tend to make up our own, but... um, I think it really helps deal with that. I've found personally it helped with my decision making. It it certainly helped me pause when I needed to pause. Rather than leaping in with a knee jerk, I, I've found more confidence to say, I need to go away and have a think about this and, and quite often sleep on it if there's a big decision to be made in work or anywhere else. Um, I will think about it and let my subconscious think about it while I'm asleep. And it's extraordinary how often your viewpoints change and something you were thinking about doing has changed. We live in a world where we're bombarded with messages, particularly if you're managing a club. I mean, there's there's all sorts of inputs, and some of them won't all be, or they won't all be positive. And it's easy to react to those in a sort of defensive way and not see that there might be some truth there or there might be a different problem at play or it's helpful to know when things aren't going according to plan because you can you can do a better job in those areas. Um, so I think meditation will really help people make better decisions and be more patient and present and and listening better to themselves and the people around them. Another extremely long answer there, Ed. I'm sorry. Um, if they were looking to get into it... I've... Before you go into that, can you go a little bit deeper into how you feel it helps you make better decisions? I think meditation and stoicism more recently will... If I don't understand something or I'm not quite sure what the motive is for a certain piece of information and I feel like it could be an emotional thing that's bringing brought my way or um, a difficult or sensitive issue I will delay making a response and I think it's helped me deal with that you know particularly stoicism where it enables me to zoom out and think okay this feels important and it's probably important to the person involved but we're in the you know it's a fragment of our lives we're talking about here 
a decision can wait for 12 hours or 24 hours. Um, and then just by going quiet for a few minutes, I think it enables, well, quite often it will enable me to either understand something better or something will occur to me that could be behind it or I might see the other person's viewpoint given time. There have been a few of those. I thought of one when I was thinking about this call this morning where someone I knew in a work context um, had a feeling, like it referred to it as a gut feeling about something and said, I've, I've learned the hard way over the years to not ignore those gut feelings. And I didn't think she was right in this very specific circumstance about what she she felt. She didn't think she felt something had happened that wasn't right. Um, and it took ages. Like I, I listened to what she said, and um, but I still thought I knew that what was right and what was wrong. And it, it took about two years, and I realised actually she was spot on. Um, that's a you know most decisions can't wait two years, but uh, just that that sort of idea of gut feeling and instinct and non-thinking reactions to stuff. I think meditation really helps that, and sometimes there's gold to be found there. And just to interject as well, it makes me think of the System One and System Two thinking by Daniel Kahneman, mm. in it, which is books thinking fast, thinking slow where thinking fast is our emotional instant reaction, which is what we want to tap into when we want people to make decisions that we want to influence. But the system two thinking is the slower, more rational, more logical thought process, which it sounds like that's almost what you're able to tap into by being able to be more aware of your emotions and what comes up and not react to them but be able to take a step back, you may be able to more engage that logical, rational thinking part, even in an emotionally charged situation. Would that be fair yeah. to say? Yeah, no, it's spot on. Um, and I can't pretend I always do it. You know, we had um, preparing for the school run this morning. There were a couple of flare-ups in the domestic panel um, household. Um, you know, none of us are perfect, but I... It is a work in progress, and I think it rubs off on other people as well. I think if you're if you're calm, particularly if you're in a, a management or leadership position, and people are looking to you for help, staying calm and taking a long view and the slow thinking you refer to there, I think that breeds a lot of um, confidence in the people around you, and takes you know it will take something off their shoulders too. They, if you're the person in charge, you're paid for the buck to stop with you. And if you keep a calm head, it just has a knock-on effect. Other people can tell you what they need to tell you and then leave it there for you to deal with. It's a bit like when you're driving in traffic and you, you know, you might, well, maybe you can feel the urge to tell a story about someone who's cut you up or whatever. But also, half a mile down the road, you can let someone in who's been waiting there for 12 cars and when that person might be in a hurry, that's those sort of small gifts. I think they come out of being more aware of what you're doing and less, maybe less selfish about what you're doing. And meditations are, you know, it's a portal into that, I think. Um, and then, at, you know, at certain levels and certain practices, it specifically explores that notion of being separate and endlessly categorizing stuff as we do. You know, we're all, part of the same ecosystem if you like i think it helps reframe things like that in a bigger picture you know zooming out of the immediate knee-jerk response it does and the stuck in traffic is a great example if you're stuck in traffic no matter how negative your self-talk is about whatever idiot you think's caused the problem or beeping your horn none of it will make you get to your destination faster all it will do is put you in a bad mood and get your stress and anxiety levels up higher so again you have a choice you either have that negative reaction and put yourself in a bad mood or you see it for what it is it's outside of your control and you put a podcast or preferably this podcast but a podcast or an audio 
book on and take the time as a learning opportunity. Yeah. I mentioned This Is Water and I was going to mention it again there because it, that absolutely hit Foster Wallace's nail on the head there. He was saying the the point is that you get to choose. In all of these situations, you get to choose. So someone looking to get into this and saying, you know, where do I start? It all sounds a bit woo-woo, which would be some people's reaction, I'm sure. I'd go and listen to that on YouTube, This Is Water. He doesn't specifically mention meditation but it's absolutely what he's driving at is being present and aware and alive um in the world around you uh there are apps i've tried a few of them headspace and calm up you know there are free versions of those or starter courses um i think you and i both share the waking up app that is just tremendous and Correct. different um different styles and lengths of meditations and talks and theories on there. And it's all non-denominational, really. It's, you know, they're not specifically Buddhist or anything else. They're, they're just about awareness. And that guy, um, Sam Harris, is fascinating to, to listen to because he is just on a mission to help people understand the deeper areas of their lives one i've just started at the moment which is great and i've i've read each of their books um jack cornfield and tara brock are doing a there's an online one and i think i think i got it for nothing um maybe do you do show notes you can put a link in there for it it's just um it's um, i'll link yeah i mean i'm just eight days into that or 12 days into that i think and um they take it in turns and these are meditation teachers with decades of experience and in various different settings and um uh you know real world um practices and uh, uh retreats and all that sort of stuff and they they're just they they're really they're really really interesting in the way they deliver the messages so so that's where i'd start i think three things i'll add into that so come back to Sam Harris and his app waking up. He's a, got a PhD in neuroscience. So he does have a scientific background to what he does. With the app, there's an introductory course, which I used when I first started, which is just introducing the practices, what it is you'll be doing. And they're quite short to start with. And with that, there's a seven day free trial you can have which will be linked to in in the show notes and the other person is dan harris who's no relation who his app is 10 percent happier yeah. have you come across yeah i used that for a while too and it really yes, he's great because and different yeah. again different styles of content books. on there and really good yeah because his book are like 10 percent happier the subtitles something along the lines of meditation guide for fidgety skeptics yeah because he was a hundred percent against meditation and very skeptical on it and then when he had a panic attack on live tv in america when he was the host of quite a big mainstream show that got him into meditation so he's someone who's come from that background to and i think 10 percent happier the idea behind that was it's quite a achievable claim I think, rather than yeah. to say that you'll get ninety percent happier, so that's another good good place to start for people. Is and then with Stoic philosophy, then you've mentioned a few books, Ryan Holiday and Ego is the Enemy, and the Daily Stoic, which is you literally read one page per day, and there's three hundred and sixty-five or three hundred and sixty-six pages of, and same as you for me. Some days it's it's a hit and it gives me something other days it just doesn't quite resonate and you mentioned marcus aurelius and his book meditations and other than those starting points anywhere else you'd get people to yeah go? i quite like seneca and seneca comes up a lot in ryan holiday's stuff but if you search for seneca and tim ferris i think ferris paid for some 
uh, readings of Seneca's work to be done. So they're good. They're they're a little bit less um, instant than the Daily Stoic. The Daily Stoic tend to be very manageable nuggets, yeah. don't they? But the other thing, Ryan Holiday's podcast mm. I find exceptional, and they're they're normally small. Um, and I don't tend to listen to the weekday ones because they're six, seven, eight minutes, and you know I'm already reading that day's daily stoic entry but the weekend ones where it has people on from pretty high functioning careers and a real diverse range of guests and they just chat and i'm sure they plan you know what they're going to talk about but it just feels like it has such a flow and he has a real skill for bringing it back to stoic principles and so on and um good sense of humor too so you know i always try and um, get those in on the weekend if i can so i think that's uh the the those two things would be a pretty powerful start talking of stoic principles there's two sayings that i actively use a lot one when i'm playing golf and that's because it's on a medallion that's my ball marker which is amor fati which just translates as to love your fate. I think that's quite a useful reminder on the golf course. Mm. You get a bad bounce, you miss a putt. That's just life. It's don't fight it. It's to, you don't, as Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. So just take each moment as it comes. And the other one, which sounds quite morbid when you first hear it, is memento mori which translates as remember that you will die. And all it means is enjoy life, enjoy today. You don't really know when it's going to end. That's the view I take when I play golf. Each time I play golf, I just partly imagine before I tee off, what if this could be my final ever game of golf? Well, it's my last game of golf once I finish it because I don't know when the next one's going to be yet. But one day it will be my final game of golf. So do I want to enjoy it, even if I'm playing poorly? Or do I want to, you know, have a bad attitude, not enjoy my game of golf, and then maybe have that taken away in an accident or whatever it might be. So I find those two sayings quite helpful for digging me out of holes if I'm in that negative mindset or self-talk, yeah. which... None of this is a panacea for it. It will still happen. Yeah, but it's just giving you a tool to move past it and, and find benefit in, in adversity. And, and that's what stoicism is all around. You know, we will put ourselves and other people will put us in difficult situations and we have the power to decide how we deal with that. You know, they always talk about, um, what's his name? Is it Stockdale? The guy who um, was in, uh, yeah, William Williamson. Think so. Um, just his attitude towards his uh, well, he was a prisoner of war, wouldn't he? And he just would not let the facts of that circumstance affect how he dealt with his jailers, with everyone else. He just in an extraordinary story, and and Ryan Holiday comes back to that one again and again, and. Um, just on your on the first coin about uh, accepting the bounces and stuff, it, you know, we maybe ought to, as club managers, issue those to new members on day one. And on the flip side, say, you know, if you had a bad bounce, the general manager probably doesn't need to know about it. <laughs> you, we could that'd be an interesting experiment to try. <laughs> we could track the data, couldn't we? So could, yeah. Coming back to Stockdale, there's an interesting point he makes of being a prisoner of war, which I think is quite apt to normal life as well. Because I think some people listen to this about stoicism and meditation can take it as being, oh, you just about being you want to be an optimist then. See everything optimistically. But when Stockdale was asked who didn't survive the prisoner of war camps, he answered it was easy to say who because it was the optimists who didn't survive because they'd say, oh, we'll be out by Easter. Easter will come and go. I'll be out by the summer. Summer will come and go. You'll be out by December, that, uh, by Christmas. That would come and go. 
and they died of a broken heart because they've been so optimistic and it kept failing them. Whereas the people who did survive were the ones who just saw the situation for what it was and just took it day by day as that situation without ever giving up hope. Yeah. But without, I think how he phrases it, it was having that unfailing knowing your situation is this and it's pretty dire, but keeping the hope it will get better without some optimism around a randomly picked date of when it will be better by. Yeah. I thought that was quite an interesting takeaway. I'm glad you brought that up. I I love that example. And, you know, we've, we had a turbulent 2020 and 21 and things kept changing. And for people who were, well, for all of us, actually, I was going to, you know, narrow it down for all of us, that uncertainty, I mean, dreadful things happen to lots of people, but um, it certainly reinforced how, changes the you know that is what the universe runs on and any situation is transient and it's we're, we're just we get sucked into the the details and the importance of everything and um all we really need to do is control what we control and let the the rest happen it was sort of a, a real life stoic lesson wasn't it the whole lockdown situation it really isn't that also brings to mind the old Persian adage of this too shall pass. For, for most bad situations or uncertain situations, it, it will get better or it will at least pass into another stage. Richard, I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask you. If you could go back to your younger self during your first, maybe deputy role, or GM role, you can choose which one. What advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? And it can't be start meditating or reading Stoic philosophy. Well, you kindly gave me a list of possible questions and meditate was one of them. So I'll discount that one. Um, (laughs) uh, Coaching stroke mentoring, I think, is really important. I've, I've been so lucky and I count you among one of those, Ed, where... I have a handful of just really insightful people who are open and detached from given situations that I might be going through where they can cancel me. And, uh, you know, it, it makes it sound terribly serious, but it's not that. And I think the club industry is really strong for being able to pick up the phone and, and speak to the the person running the club down the road and you'll help each other. And, you know, in certain cases you're in direct competition, but it's not, there's a sort of quite special thing about club management. I think in that we, we, we will help each other. And if I was going back, I would have been more organized. I think about looking for potential mentors and, and if you can afford coaching and that's probably at the point where you go into a GM role, I was a little bit skeptical of that and, and also a bit scared of the the cost involved. But I think having a, an external coach, and I know a, a few um, people who I know quite well who aren't in the club world and are you know in big money jobs in other industries, their external coaching is just transformational for them. Um, and it gives them a, a sanding board and... Um, just a detachment from the the very tight um, bubble that club management can be. So I'd say that. And then just one other thing on that is um, journaling or, or making notes. You know, you got particularly if it's your first GM role and you're stepping up. I think most of us experience some sort of imposter syndrome. I know I get it every single morning. I try and write anything. So, but when you're when you're suddenly the boss or you've stepped up in responsibility or whatever, that's a, it's just gold learning you can do there. So writing it down is a reflective process or journaling on what you're going through. It's a reflective process similar to meditation and it will just, um, you know, when you say something out loud, out loud or commit it to paper, it changes what's going on inside your head, I think. So I do more of that and it's always the excuse that i'm too busy is always there 
but it'll make you a better person, a better leader if you do that, I think. Yeah, reflection and kind of debriefing yourself with journaling is very powerful. It is something I've used and sometimes you write stuff down that's rattling around in your head, which you actually had no idea was even in there and helps to get it out on paper sometimes. You mentioned... um... I was just going to say, uh, Greg Patterson, I think you're going to have on here. And that, you know, I've been in enough CME sessions with him hammering, doing demands debrief at us. Uh, That catchphrase is never going to leave my head, but it's so powerful. And he's spot on. It applies to everything, not just the the jobs we do during the day. Um, Taking the time to reflect and debrief on stuff and pre-brief as well. You know, go in. I know you're particularly good at that head go in having thought about what might be about to happen it just it enables you to react so much more quickly when unexpected things happen because you you may have foreseen them absolutely when i did my master's degree recently the week one of the entire degree was entirely around reflection all the reading was on about how to critical reflection because at the end of every week we were meant to keep a reflection diary that you would reflect on what you read that week how it challenged your previous perceptions and ideas what you'd learned what you'd reinforced and doing that for two years going through that and especially going through the research project doing that was incredibly powerful really open your eyes to what you'd learn as well. I think sometimes we learn stuff and although it goes in, if you don't reflect and debrief yourself on it, you don't really learn it. Coming back to the mentors and coaching side, one thing I do is I have a, what I call a board of directors for myself. So it's a group of six people who I don't necessarily have to actually speak to, though they are there for me to use as a sounding board. Sometimes if I'm unsure in a situation, or it's a difficult decision or maybe an ethical dilemma. I just think like if I had to stand in front of those six people and tell them my choice of action, if any part of me goes, feels I'd be uncomfortable, tells me straight away, it's the wrong choice of action or decision. And they're also there. Some of them work in golf. Some don't. They're there as people that I trust their opinion, even if they don't understand the precise details of what what's happening that's powerful i've i have a couple of friends who i one plays golf and i very very occasionally play with him or um but you know he works in a completely different sphere and lives a totally different life but um he's one of probably four or five who i would call if i had a genuine problem and it's fascinating how kind people are. They they will drop and they will help and they'll just see certain people just see the nuts and bolts of a situation instantly, don't they? And that clarity of um, having an external view on it is so valuable. Is it a paid uh, position? Yeah, especially, well, they get 10% of all my golf earnings from tournaments. Wonderful. So Lucrative stuff. Generally... <laughs> Lucrative some, yeah. In the last five years, other than you can't use meditation or stoic philosophy in this answer, sorry, either. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Um, just writing. Or just writing in general. Uh, writing in general. Um, I found it absolutely terrifying mm. putting stuff in front of other people. Um, fear uh goes on and and every day everything i send out on the substack um it's the same thing is this any good you sort of question yourself but i found it just um it's the most precious thing to me at the moment and i wish i'd done it sooner but uh, you know the second best time to start something is now and and i'm so pleased i i did start writing um, meditating would have been the answer, I think, but the two things are linked because it was only getting off grid and spending a bit more time in working on meditation that I found the triggers to go and try this thing that I'd always wanted to do. So um, uh, they're, they're inextricably linked, those two. 
but I, you know, it just brings me enormous joy in the same way that for some people that might be playing the piano or, um, I don't know, uh, learning to ski or whatever. It's, um, it's just a, a precious thing. I've got two final questions for you and then I'll let you go about your day. What advice do you think your 10 year older self would give you now? Yeah, I play around with this sort of thing and I've heard it. Other people talk about, you know, writing a letter to your future self and writing one back and writing to you. I find the whole process fascinating. I, I thought about this a bit this morning. You know, I'm in a, um, a really good position at the moment in terms of my work-life balance. I have a job that I really enjoy and I have plenty of time while my children are at an age where they're around. And um, so I think my advice would be to just think things are developing here and they're, um, the writing is taking me in a different direction and I'm just I just need to be patient, I think, and take my time going back into a full-time job if one turns up. You know, I, there's no hurry at the moment. There's a reason I paused, and it came from deep within, and it feels like me and those around me are, are um, benefiting from that pause. Uh, and it was a brave, quite a difficult decision to do that, um, and you know, Ed, you and I both share an understanding what it's like to be floating around thinking, well, when does the next job come along? Now, I'm really lucky that I, I have a job that um, I'm enjoying at the moment, but it's not all consuming and it's not full time. So my my advice from 10 years just be to take your time because I think it will all pan out the way you want it to. You just need to work out what it is that you want. And finally, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your career? Well, the, the sort of answer I had for this, I inadvertently used earlier around gut feeling. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm going to repeat that, I think. A lot of our time is spent thinking, and a lot of that thinking is can be negative, and it's, you know, it's, it's work to control that and see it for what it is um, and not listen to those narratives we tell. I think often we feel stuff and we will ignore it or can't even listen to the signals. So something around gut feeling and sleeping on difficult decisions, they're two things that people have said to me and they've just, they pop up when I need them, those. And if I'm not sure about something and my gut's telling me it's the wrong thing, just take your time be patient i think the interesting one there with the gut feeling do you think you could write out everything that you know how consciously do you know everything that you know that you've learned in your whole life no you probably don't no like if, if i said to you list down list down the name of every person you know you'd miss half mm. Because so much of it is just in the background that we can't necessarily access. And I think that's where that gut feeling is your brain having that connection. And interesting with the gut feeling, without getting too sciencey on it, there's a thing called the vagus nerve, which connects your gut to your brain. And the current science says that actually the signal is gut to brain, not brain Mm. to gut. So there's going to be that connection in there of stuff. Hence, that's science I've read is that's why they believe the gut feeling is in the gut because of that nerve that connects the two. And that's a feeling being sent that there's something there. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? We all know that that feeling that something doesn't quite smell right. It's not, it's not as it looks. Um, we all know that, and it's quite easy to ignore it or let a logical decision or seemingly logical decision override it. But um, no, I think it's a it's a powerful thing. But again, we come back to slowing down and paying attention, and meditation helps that. And listening to each other and ourselves is just a a skill that we could all do with a bit more training on, I think. I agree. And links to everything we've discussed will be in the show notes. 
Richard, thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, today. Ed. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation across. You'll be in the centre of the fairway and I'll be in the heavy rough. We'll continue the dialogue. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we dive into the world of club management. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. If you do enjoy and get value from them, I have two small requests. Simply subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review and share it directly with someone whom you think would benefit from listening. If you're interested in being a guest on this show yourself, then you can reach out to me using the details in the show notes or email me modernclubmanagement at pm.me. In the show notes, you will also find a link to my bi-weekly newsletter that complements these conversations where you can sign up to receive these directly into your inbox so that you never miss out. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing day. This episode is brought to you by Sweda. Sweda is the social learning platform that delivers high quality blended learning with human connection. Sweda is on a mission to revolutionize the digital learning space through restoring the critical element of human engagement that has gotten lost in online learning. The technology provides everything organizations or individuals need on one single platform to achieve meaningful long-term learning success. Using these skills helped me attain a job offer as the director of golf at Golf Digest, top 100 in the world ranked course after I completed their influence and communication courses. But don't just take my word and the 97% five-star reviews it has had on Trustpilot for it. Try it yourself. All you have to do is email david at suada.com. That's S-U-A-D-A.com. And quote, the Modern Club Management Podcast to claim your free enrollment onto the Reciprocity course to start your journey to become a more influential and persuasive communicator.